Turn to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. We are moving right along in our study of the book of Daniel. The plan is to spend at least a couple weeks here in chapter 9, maybe three weeks. We'll see how it goes. Today we will read through verse 23. So, follow as I read, verse 1 through 23, and remember this is indeed the Word of God. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent Amid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely seventy years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from Your commandments and rules. We have not listened to Your servants, the prophets, who spoke in Your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To You, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. And we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in His laws, which He set before us by His servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against Him. He has confirmed His words, which He spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us, by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight (coughs) by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. 
For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Amen. All right. Um, Here in verse 1, we'll just start there. This is not the first time we've been introduced to Darius the Mede. Anybody remember where we first met Darius? We met him at the end of chapter 5. You can turn there if you like. Um, Remember, the book starts with uh, Nebuchadnezzar as king in Babylon. Daniel is uh, given an interpretation of a dream of Nebuchadnezzar and, you know, the big image with the golden head and all that business. And and, uh, Nebuchadnezzar was the king in Babylon, but Nebuchadnezzar has since gone and Belshazzar, Uh, his descendant is now king in Babylon. Uh, Belshazzar was a godless man, and uh, this scene in chapter 5 is uh, the handwriting on the wall. There was a hand that appeared and wrote some stuff on the wall. But the context was there was this big feast, and they had brought out... Remember, Nebuchadnezzar stole from... When they sacked Jerusalem, God used Nebuchadnezzar to sack Jerusalem and bring the people of Israel in, into exile. And in the process, he stole a lot of the uh, holy elements from the temple and things like that. And so Belshazzar brings those things out. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is the one that took them, but he never used them. But Belshazzar is like, hey, we got some pretty sweet uh, you know, vessels. Let's bring those out and drink some wine and have a big time. And it was uh, during that event when the hand appears and writes on the wall and they call for Daniel because what does this mean? And Daniel says, it means you're going to die and your kingdom's going to be destroyed. And so that's what happens. And you see in verse 30 and 31, that very night Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. So, not only is this the end of Belshazzar's reign in Babylon, this is the end of Babylon as the great world power, because Darius was a Mede. He was of the Medo-Persian kingdom, and the Medo-Persian kingdom supplanted Babylon as the great world power. That's what happens at the end of chapter 5 when we read that. Uh, So think about this from Daniel's point of view. Years prior to this, God had given him the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2. And some of the bits of the interpretation were, one day, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, your kingdom, Babylon, is going to be toppled. I know you're the great world power. I know that you seem invincible right now. But that's not the way it's uh, going to be. One day, 
it's going to be toppled. And that's where we are in the verse 1 of chapter 9. We're in the first year of the new regime of the kingdom that toppled Babylon. And another part of that vision in chapter 2 was that that kingdom, the Medo-Persian kingdom, would not reign forever. They too would be toppled. We know that that was by the Greeks. And that kingdom would be toppled by Rome. And so there's all of this, um, you know, the great kingdoms of the earth will rise and fall. But in the part of that vision it says, but during the days of those kings, God will establish His kingdom and it will never fail. It will never fall. It will last forever. Um, You know, Jesus came under... Roman rule and God was establishing his kingdom and it will never fail. Um, and, you know, so we see the, the toppling of kingdoms and the toppling of kings and Daniel has been hearing about this or thinking about this for years, ever since he interpreted this dream of Nebuchadnezzar years and years ago. Um, and then he, when he was a bit older, under Belshazzar's reign, Daniel was given two visions. We just studied those in chapter 7 and chapter 8. Visions that build on what we find in chapter 2. That fill out for us a bit more about the undoing of these worldly kingdoms as well as more about Christ building His kingdom. You know, the Son of Man who uh, uh, inherits His dominion and glory and kingdom that all people's nations and languages would serve Him. We talked about that. These are not things that Daniel has forgotten. I mean, these are defining moments in Daniel's life. God came to him and spoke to him and gave him the interpretation of these visions. This was monumental, uh, sustaining him, you know, through these years of exile. And then we're in the first year of the Medo-Persian Empire under Darius. Which means Babylon has been toppled. Which means the visions that he has seen are in motion. These things are actually happening. This has to be an amazing thing for Daniel. He has heard that it's going to happen. And he's seeing it happen. However, one thing that's worth noting in verse 2 is that not a whole lot has changed in Daniel's life. He says that he perceives something significant in the book of Jeremiah. Which means he must have been reading the book of Jeremiah. Now, we've already seen the devotional life of Daniel earlier in the book. Uh, He would pray three times a day, every day, it said, facing out the window toward Jerusalem. And we'll talk a bit more about why. Ultimately, he's just longing for the homeland. But um, remember, that's what he got into the lion's den for. He was, because he refused to stop praying. Uh, They made a law, everyone must pray to the king. And he just continued praying to God. He didn't, he didn't obey the law. And they said, if you pray to anyone else, you'll be fed to the lions. Well, uh, that's what happened. But here in chapter 9, we also see that Daniel read God's Word. It's kind of a side point, but we do see that Daniel led a life of spiritual discipline. Now, God certainly visited Daniel in some extraordinary ways. Uh, ways that he's probably not visiting us in our quiet time. He gave Daniel the interpretation of the dream. He gave him these two visions in chapter 7 and chapter 8. But we have to keep in mind that this was over a period of many years. I mean, he was in Babylon nearly 70 years. And it seems that we're also being shown uh, not only that God visited Daniel in some extraordinary ways a few times, but that he pursued his relationship with the Lord in very ordinary ways for the bulk of the time. The Word of God and prayer. 
These were the only means of grace that were available to him. He couldn't have corporate worship. He couldn't gather together and worship the people. Remember, at that time, worship was tied to the temple. And so when they were removed from the Holy Land and the temple was destroyed, they couldn't worship God corporately anymore. But he still had the Word, apparently, because he's reading Jeremiah, and he still had his daily prayers uh, for years and years in Babylon. Again, that's why he prayed toward Jerusalem, longing for worship of God to be restored, um, to be back there with God's people worshiping the Lord. But even in exile, when he wasn't in a situation where he could worship the Lord in the way that God had prescribed, Daniel was a man of God pursuing his relationship with God in regular daily spiritual discipline. And it was in the course of those spiritual disciplines that God showed Daniel something here, in his word. So the side lesson for us is simply to dig into the regular means of grace that God has given us. Corporate worship is available to us, um, as are the word of God and prayer. And, you know, we can learn a lot just from the consistency that we find from Daniel. He had three scheduled daily times of prayer. These were the times that he learned as a boy in Jerusalem. These were just the, uh, this was the Jewish liturgy. This was the way that they structured their days and their weeks. They would worship together on Saturday. They would have daily prayers other than that. And so when he goes into exile, he's not able to worship anymore corporately, but he just continues the day. In fact, he says in verse uh, 20, uh, when, when Gabriel comes in verse 21, while I was speaking, the man Gabriel came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. This is really interesting because he's probably not been in uh, Jerusalem in 65 years. But his clock is still on Jerusalem time. It's the time of the evening sacrifice. It's the time when we do the things that we do in relationship with God. So it just shows that he stayed in an orderly process of spiritual discipline throughout his exile. And for us, um, things are a little bit different. Maybe we're at a deficit because we don't have these daily times of prayer where everyone is praying. Um, But we have to kind of make those up on our own. What times are we going to go before the Lord in the Word and in prayer? We do have times of worship. But just uh, the lesson would be that uh, we make use of the ordinary means of grace that God has given us. He will visit us at times, maybe in our lifetime, in extraordinary ways. But we are only given about three or so times where God really visited Daniel in these extraordinary ways uh, in his private devotions. Of course, he did deliver him from the lion's den, and he did, uh, you know, there's all that kind of stuff. But still, we're talking about a handful of times over 70 years. So think about that. Just the ordinary means of pursuing relationship with the Lord And that truly is what sustained him. Alright, so what did God show Daniel uh, in the Word? Verse 2, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the Word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Alright, turn to Jeremiah chapter 25. couple, three books behind Daniel. Jeremiah 25, verses 8 through 14. I'll read that quickly. 
Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And I will bring them against this land and against its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years. Then after seventy years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon that land all the words that I have uttered against it, everything written in this book, which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall make slaves even of them, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. All right, what's going on here? This was the prophecy that Daniel comes across when he's reading Jeremiah. Uh, It was the original promise that God's people were going to go into exile because of their disobedience. It says, God sent for Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, to come and take his people, Israel, into captivity in Babylon. He devoted his holy people and his holy land to destruction because his people refused to obey his words. I mean, if that doesn't sober us about the discipline of the Lord, it ought to. He, ta- he turned the joy of the Holy Land into a sorrow. And he brought his people into captivity in Babylon for about 70 years. Now, Daniel was in the first wave of those that came into captivity <coughs> in the year 605 B.C. That was around the time that Jeremiah gave the prophecy. He was a young man at the time, likely a teenager, young teenager. But in Daniel chapter 9, when he's reading the book of Jeremiah and he comes across this uh, prophecy, he's an old man that has lived in Babylon most of his life. The first year of Darius was probably 538 B.C. It's 67 years after Daniel came into Babylon. Now, I'm not sure exactly how you calculate the 70 years. Uh, This is the thing that I think makes the most sense. Some say you would start from the time that Babylon conquered the Assyrians, which was in 609 B.C. That was a few years before Daniel was taken uh, and the people were taken into Babylon. But then Babylon was conquered by the Medo-Persians in 539 B.C. So you have 609 to 539, 70 years. So when verse 11 says, These nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years, it's talking about Israel and all the surrounding nations because they were all under the rule of Babylon for 70 years. There are a couple other explanations. That seems the most likely to me. So when Daniel reads this as an old man in Babylon, he is realizing that the 70 years are complete. How do we know this? Because in verse 12 it says, After 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation for their iniquity, declares the Lord. That's just happened. We're in the first year of the Medo-Persian kingdom. The king of Babylon has just been punished and Babylon has just been toppled. And it says that will happen when the 70 years are over. When they're completed. So, Belshazzar was killed. The Medo-Persians are now ruling. We're in the first year of the new world power. Can you imagine what Daniel's thinking as he's reading this? I mean, what? The 70 years are up. I mean, this stuff just happened. And I can imagine that brings some questions. Well, what does that mean for us? 
you know, it was a 70-year thing. So it's over. So what? What does that mean? What, what's going to happen? He keeps reading and he comes to Jeremiah 29. Look at Jeremiah 29, 10 through 14. Anyone want to read that? Jeremiah 29, 10 through 14. Not everyone at once, but if someone wants to uh, jump in, please. Okay. For thus says the Lord, when seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. One little note of passing. We do need to get the context right for our favorite little verse there. And uh, that is given before they go into exile. So that's a great promise that is given on the front end of 70 years of darkness. Okay? So, it is a great promise, but be careful putting it on your coffee mug. You never know what God might do. He might give you a lifetime of darkness for you to cling to that verse, because that's the context, and we need to get that right. But, but he reads this at the end of the 70 years. This is... Can you imagine what he's thinking? I mean, it's not only that I'm going to topple Babylon, but I'm going to come and get you. I am going to restore you to the homeland. You will seek me and you will find me. I will hear your prayers. I will bring you home. I have a good plan for you. I will gather you from the nations to which I have driven you and I will bring you home. Can you imagine what he's feeling as he's reading this? He has spent nearly his whole life, at least his whole adult life, in Babylon. He's an old man. And he's just discovered the thing that he longed for every single day, three times a day, when he faced out the window praying toward Jerusalem. He discovers in Jeremiah that it's as good as done. God has said. And when God says... God does. He's been experiencing that throughout His time in exile. The 70 years are up. We know that because Babylon has been toppled. And what happens after that, God said it's about time for His people to go home. Now, this is incredible. This is a spiritual high, if there ever was one. Finding in God's Word, in the immediate context, oh my goodness, He's about to come get us and bring us home. But, not but, I just I want us to take note of Daniel's response. Because this is the good news if there ever was good news. But we see in verse 3 that Daniel, he says, Then I turned my face to the Lord. As soon as he found this out, he's reading this joyful news of deliverance. He says, I turned my face to the Lord, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession. I mean, did you know, when we were reading Daniel's prayer, he was 
just talking about his own sin. That's basically what he said. And the sin of his nation. I mean, it was just a prayer of repentance. We might expect to see something like jumping and dancing. I mean, that's how good the news is. But that's not what we see at all. We see he puts on the clothes of mourning, sackcloth and ashes. He enters a period of fasting and uh, a state of mourning, praying, pleading for mercy. Why is there no jumping and celebrating? Because God is near and Daniel rightly fears Him. The right response to God when He is this near is the fear of God. Indeed, I think if He comes this close, it's the only response that's available to us. Uh, You know, they say the hallmark of a true revival, like in the Great Awakenings in our country or revivals throughout history, is there is such a sobriety. There's no talking about fleeting things. It's just, it's a fear of the Lord. It's a lot of prayer and a lot of brokenness and humility, which is what we see here. Because God has come near. And um, it's like in Acts chapter 2 when Peter preaches the first Christian sermon. And you know, 3,000 people are converted in that first sermon. But what happens when they hear it, get to the end of it, they say, they were cut to the heart. What do we do? they They were cut wide open and broken because God was near. And He was announcing blessing for them. Salvation. And yet their response is a bit different than what we might expect. He's announcing deliverance and they're falling on the ground in sackcloth and ashes. What's going on? It reminded me of a couple other passages. Um, I was going to read them, but I think we're out of time. Isaiah 6, 1 through 6. You know, I saw the Lord in his holy temple, and I said, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. I mean, and then the seraphim comes and puts the hot coal and says, Your sins are forgiven. Your sins have been atoned for. But what happens when you see the Lord? You, woe is me, I am a sinner. You are exposed before the Holy God. It's the same thing in Matthew 17, the transfiguration, when Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on the holy mountain, and He's transfigured into His glorified state. And there's a whole series of events, but then the Father speaks from heaven. You know what happens? They fall on the ground in fear. Because God is near. And the right response to God is the fear of the Lord. We also see, though, that there is an encouraging response in each of those situations. In uh, Isaiah 6, in in fear, and yet the messenger comes and announces the gospel. In Matthew 17, they fall in fear, and yet Jesus leans down and touches them and says, do not fear. The gospel in flesh is there with them and says, do not fear. Now, he's not saying your response is wrong. No, it's, it's appropriate. But I've got good news for you in that state of brokenness. And it's the same thing in Daniel chapter 9. God is near. He falls in fear. He's exposed. All He can do is confess sin and confess more sin and confess more sin because God has just moved in and the lights have come on and He's exposed. I'm a sinner before a holy God. And it's almost strange to us because this is really glorious news that He has discovered It's a promise of deliverance from a lifetime of exile. In fact, I think what's going on here is the news is so glorious and so clear that the only response 
is to fear God. And just like in Isaiah 6 and Matthew 17, there's an encouraging response that comes in their place of fearing the Lord. Verses 20 to 23, uh, Gabriel comes and says, Hey, we've heard your pleas. God heard your pleas. And He sent me to tell you something even as you're praying. And what does He say? At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you. You are greatly loved. He tells him the good news. He tells him, hey, all of this, remember, this is really about God's deliverance. And I get it. You're, you're sitting here and you're seeing all this happen and you're meeting with God and His Word as if He were standing right in front of you. And all you can do is fall in fear because it's so overwhelming because He's speaking right to you. And I'm going to come to assure you, the fear of the Lord is the right response, by the way, but I am here to assure you, you are loved. That's what this is about. You're loved. God loves you. He has redeemed you. He's taken you home. So, what is happening here is that God is moving in with the good news. Good news of deliverance from a lifetime of slavery. Good news of a life restored to the promised land. The thing that Daniel has longed for his whole adult life, and he's just discovered that God has said it's as good as done, but when God moves in, it exposes him because the lights are on. And he, all he can see, I'm a sinner. I don't, no one is worthy of this great God and His grace and His mercy. And so all I can do is confess all the sin that I see and plead for His mercy. And then he's assured of it. It's the same for us. When God moves into someone's life with the Gospel, with the good news of deliverance from slavery to sin, with good news of salvation in Christ and eternal life and an even greater promised land, the new heavens and the new earth, we see in His Word that He's declared that it's as good as done. It's glorious. But when He moves into someone's life to bring them to this knowledge of the truth, it humbles us and it breaks us and we're exposed. And all of a sudden, all we can see is I'm a sinner. Right? If you don't see that, you haven't really believed the Gospel. I mean, they go hand in hand. So he gets close and we think, oh my word, I've never seen my sin like this. It's terrible. I am wretched. Because the lights come on and it humbles us. And we don't really like what we see. And it's pretty ugly. And we can we, we wonder... How are we ever even going to love ourselves? Much less, how could God love me with all of this? But we're assured in the Gospel, God has a message. He's heard your pleas for mercy. You are loved. That's, what, that's, what, that's the good news. But I just, I was struck by, this is exactly how it happens when someone is converted. This is exactly how it happens in in monumental periods of growth in our lives. God is moving close. And we think we're falling off the rails. When in reality, He's just exposing us and He's going to get rid of some of that stuff through repentance and faith. And He may discipline some of it. um, But it's not actually everything breaking down. We do have to break in order to be built back up. But it's everything being built up. Matthew 5, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed 
are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You know, it's this, that's what it looks like for someone to walk with God. God gets close and you, you break in your spirit. And you mourn even over your sin and over your insufficiency. You're hungry and thirsty for a righteousness that you don't have. And you're very aware that you don't have it. And yet the announcement of the gospel is someone else's righteousness. God loves you. And He has provided a righteousness that is sufficient. That will cover you. And so you're in Christ. All of your sins are taken care of. You're loved. And if you break over your sin, don't think that something's going wrong. I would say something's going very right. Follow Daniel's lead. We repent. We confess our sin as often as we're aware of it. And sometimes... It's overwhelming and that's all we're aware of. Well, that's okay. Just confess it. He's faithful to forgive you and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And, you know, I think this is something we really have to help other people with too. We want the people that we love to know the Lord. We pray for them to know the Lord. And if He indeed answers those prayers and moves into their life, they're going to break. <laughs> it's going to be a mess. It's what happens. And we need to be there to like assure them no, this is, nothing's wrong. This is actually very right. This is what has to happen. We're prideful. We have to be humbled. We have to see who we really are in our own strength, in our own sin, so that we will call on the Lord, His grace, His mercy, His righteousness in Christ. And um, it's good news. It's a good passage. It, doesn't it seem strange at first when... You know, he gets this message and then he's like, woe is me. <laughs> it just, it, I don't know, it did for me, but then it makes all the sense in the world. All right, you guys have any questions? Or thoughts? Does your experience confirm that growing in Christ is a bit humbling? Why do you think that we think something is wrong when God moves near? Because it's bad to feel weak. That's what we're told. Yeah. I, just, I, think, I mean, I guess the one, the humility part, it seems like God just continually uses people who are the absolute lowest to the Yeah. I guess in our society, we're just completely dog that. Like, if you do certain things, you're just a huge wuss. A wuss? Not at all. But that is tr- that's why we think something's wrong is because our culture operates exactly the opposite. The strong will survive. You know, we got to be great. And look, I, I want to be strong in the things that God has called me to be. But I think we have to embrace the way that God makes us strong. And one of the ways that he does that is he exposes our weakness and he puts us on the ground and he crushes us. I was telling a young man this week, he said he's so overwhelmed because he's in his 20s and he's facing all of this responsibility that just speeds up and speeds up and speeds up. And he's considering whether he wants to marry and have children and, you know, a big boy job and all this stuff. I'm like, look, man, you know what God's going to do with all that? He's going to absolutely crush you. But you know what he's going to do? He's going to pick you up from there in His strength and mold you into the man that He's called you to be. If He doesn't break you, you'll be a terrible human being. One of the ways that God makes good men is He breaks them. You want to see a bunch of bad men? Take all the responsibility away from them. That's how you get bad men. 
it's good that we, and it's it's not unique to men, but I mean, I can speak for men. It's um, it's humbling, and that's a good thing, because we are proud, and if we were to go in our own strength, it would be a disaster. It's still sometimes a disaster, you know, but but. He makes us into the men that He's called us to be by breaking us down, molding us and shaping us and building us back up. And uh, it seems wrong to us because it's exactly the opposite of the way the world works. Or, you know, the way they think that we ought to arrive. We need to conquer the others and be the best. So, good stuff. Anybody else? Because I think it's interesting that the Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. Um, I don't know what the you know, the Hebrew says, but in the New American Standard, it says plans for welfare, not calamity. But when you're reading in Daniel chapter nine, verse twelve, thus he's confirmed his words which he's spoken to bring on us great calamity, the rulers who rule over us. It's like he said, plans for welfare, not calamity. Yeah. But there's lots and lots of calamity involved. Calamity involved. Yeah. In the welfare. The opposite of what we think it should be. Right. That doesn't look like welfare. Yeah. That's a good word. Well, this is, uh, you know, it's one thing to be able to um, see this in our own lives, see it by faith, and embrace God's ways when He's humbling us. No one likes to, you know, ladies, you experience the same thing. God overwhelms you. He, he shows you your sin. He shows you your weakness. Sometimes He might use really little people to do that. And, uh, you know, you all you can do is just confess your sin and plead for mercy. And you know what? You're assured. You're loved. We come back to Christ again and again. We're loved. Um, but in that humility, God is strengthening you. That's how He strengthens us. So I would also say... I think in the craze of our culture currently, what God is doing is strengthening the church. He's exposing her. He's, he's humiliating her in many ways. Um, he's breaking us down to strengthen us. He's humbling us corporately. You know, he's exposing all kinds of wickedness that's been going on in our midst. He's disciplining us, but He will be faithful to us as we see here. We may have some dark days and some dark years ahead as you know the church, um, but one thing we can bank our lives on, our eternities on, is that God will be faithful to His people. And He does have a good plan for us. <laughs> it just may involve some dark twists and turns. So let's pray, and we'll go to church. Our Father in heaven, you are holy, holy, holy. You are righteous. You are good. We are not those things. And so, Lord, it only makes sense that when we really get a glimpse of you, we're exposed and and we're humbled. And when you come close, Lord, it just, we see more of what we're made of in and of ourselves. And it is wretched. It's really the first order of business in in embracing you, Lord Jesus, is to see ourselves. 
And we thank you for being faithful, uh, not only to do that in our conversions, but also in our growth in Christ, that you will just continue to humble us because that's, we know that's what we need. Our hearts are prone to wander. We're prone to pride. We're prone to think that we can live this life out from under your authority um, without depending on you, Lord, and that is wicked. And we confess that we continue to go back there and we are just grateful that you're faithful to us. You're faithful to discipline us and to humble us and to come and get us when we do that. Thank you for bringing some measure of humility. As scary as it is, we pray for more because, Lord, we know that in our weakness, you are strong. We know that we cannot do what you've called us to do in our own strength, but we know that your power is made perfect in our weakness. And so we're asking for more grace and more strength. Lord, I pray that the gospel would be a fresh balm to uh, wounded souls this morning that we would know that we are loved, that our sins are forgiven, and that Your grace comes not only for forgiveness, but also for empowerment and transformation, that that we can actually grow and become more and more like You, Lord Jesus. And uh, we confess that we feel like we're still a great way off, and we are. But um, we trust, Lord, in Your perfect timing. We trust that You have us right where You want us. And we ask uh, that you would continue to strengthen our hope in Christ and um, cause us to follow you and glorify you in all that we do. Thank you for your grace and mercy. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.